This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Or not to pod? That is the question. Whether tis nobler in the ears to suffer the pops and clips of outrageous microphones, or to take arms against a sea of edits and by opposing fix them. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. Get thee to a pottery. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Get thee to a pottery barn. My favorite <laughs> branded Shakespeare. Can you imagine if Shakespeare had gotten like the brands involved? It so what would that what what would that have taken the form of, do you think? Is there like a version of like the product Tempest placement? Yeah. It's like brought to you by like Cal a Caliban comes out and he's like got a Mountain Dew. Well, he would probably have like some agricultural products to sell and like maybe the like sale- John Deere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe some of the sailors would be like you have like geico insurance on their boat or something like mm-hmm. the gecko could show up and you be you have like a skull and you're like oh alas poor yorick that he didn't drink enough milk and his bones the, his, look how bad the skull is anyway drink milk got milk and that's <laughs> the end of the ad hamlet's favorite speech got milk mm-hmm we're a podcast about books. To milk, perchance, to calcium. We're going to talk about a book that neither one of us has read before, and then we're going to tell but you about it. But then one of us it. did read it. <laughs> yeah. We, you like to point that part out, because, well, because just in case. Otherwise, otherwise, it sounds like neither of us read it. <laughs> Fair enough. Which, based on some of the more negative iTunes reviews of ours that I've seen, does seem like a misconception that people do you know, sometimes walk away from the show. Sometimes with. we just want to talk about things other than the book, but not this sometimes, week. Sometimes. Not this week. No, this week we're going to talk all about this book. Called Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. And so I thought this was a contraption for caching meat. Did you? But apparently it's not. Is it not? It's not a ham net. Could be. Do you think butchers wear ham nets? No, that's on their hair. That They wear a hair net to keep their hair from getting in the ham. They do have ham nets. That, that's like the mesh bag that you like hang the hams in. Right? Yeah. That's a ham net. Makes them look all tasty. Mm-hmm. I love it. Gives them that cross hatching that yes. like, cartoon hams have. So you thought I was going to tell you about a meat book? Yeah, some kind of book with uh, meat and contraptions for containing or apprehending the meat. See, these are the things that make people confused about whether or not we've read the books. Um, mm-hmm. This was a book that came out this year, I think, or last year. It's this new. This year, 2020. Uh, year of our bard, 2020. Um, it is what maggie o'farrell's eighth book i think eighth novel i don't remember she's written eight novels and she also wrote a best-selling memoir i am i am wait wait wait. i just thought about i thought about product placement oh my good lord and do you know um who shakespeare married do you know what her occupation was what she was a stratford upon avon lady So Maggie O'Farrell was born in 1972. She's an Irish-British novelist. Um, she's written eight novels between the year 2000 and the year 2020, including this one and then also that autobiography that you mentioned. I am, I am, I am 17 brushes with death. Doesn't that seem like a lot of brushes? That's an unfortunate... Seems like maybe you need to save some of the brushes with death for some other people. Oh, God. that's Don't yeah. take them all. For Please. yourself. Please Let do other not. people experience that. Spread the wealth on that one. Mm-hmm. What well, else you got? That's pretty much what I have about <laughs> Her other books include After You'd Gone, My Lover's Lover, The Distance Between Us, 
which won a Somerset Mom Award. This one, I think, won the Women's Fiction Award for 2020. It did. Um, Women's Fiction Prize. The, the Women's Prize for Fiction. There it is. That's the exact phrasing I was looking for. Mm-hmm. The Women's Fiction Prize. It was published in Canada as Hamnet and Judith. Um, Hamnet, sis, Hamnet, who is William Shakespeare's son. Uh, William Shakespeare had three kids, Hamnet, Judith, and at least in this book, it's Susanna. I think that is correct his- historically, but I, I am open to the idea that I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, she's been on the interview circuit with this one a lot. This one was on a lot of best of lists. And when we were looking around for some contemporary books with some kind of canonical themes to maybe put in this slot, this was one that you were like, hey, Craig, you you do theater. Yeah, Read you this theater. Shakespeare book. Read me to tell me about this Hamnet. Yeah, that's what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, I will just say, like my my experience with Hamlet. Let's go through it real quick. And to get it out of the way, and there are going to be a bunch of the little like facts that everybody knows about Shakespeare, and that you have to mention every time you talk about Shakespeare, <laughs> peppered throughout this. I think uh, the first one I'm going to break out is that Hamlet and Hamnet are basically interchangeable as names, or they would have been in like the records of the time. So yeah. it is commonly thought that the play Hamlet is in part a reference to Hamnet, the dead son. Yes, that's a big thing that um, wa- O'Farrell mentions in her like post-novel note. Uh, she cites Stephen Greenblatt, whose book Will in the World is really the only like Shakespeare biography that I've read. That, that goes play-by-play play through the canon, not all of them, but a bunch of them, and puts a lot of historical context around them. He's written a lot about some of this stuff and is one of the most... Uh, I would say confident in the Hamnet Hamlet connections. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I was reading, uh, our friends, the new critics from the early 20th century who were like, yo, the author's dead. Nothing about his life matters to the works that they made. <laughs> Jeez, um, okay. They were pretty into <clears throat> the idea that Hamnet dying had nothing to do with the play Hamlet because it was definitely and and was based on a 13th century myth or legend about a guy named Amleth. Um, whose life included a lot of the beats that we see in the play itself. Um, so it, it gave a lot of fuel for people to be like, definitely not about his son who died when he was 11. It's definitely not that, mm-hmm. but it probably was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the, the basis for this book. Um, when I got out of college, I assistant directed a production of Hamlet, which mostly means like you're there to provide support for the people not playing Hamlet because the director's time is really monopolized by your Hamlet. By Hamlet, yes, sure. Um, you can also work crew on that show and during a crucial set change, like leave a piece out of place because earlier that morning, the dry cleaner sent someone else's clothes to another show in town and everyone was off their games. It was very fun. Did you do that? Yeah, I definitely did that. You did that? Good yeah, job. It was It was a real Good job. You'll we never work all, in this town again. We did a lot of shows that week. Um, <laughs> I, as I mentioned, I did read that Stephen Greenlap book. Most of the things that I've remembered about that are about uh, Mackers and the influence of the King James on that play, etc. Um, Mackers is another. Okay, so here's another Shakespeare fact: is like people in theater can't say the name of the Scottish one. Yeah, it's true. So you either call it the Scottish play or Mackers or some other. Yep. Euphemism. Mm-hmm. It's true. You're so not, you're not that's what he's, he's not talking about like Paul McCartney. He's talking about <laughs> he's talking about the play rhymes with Pack Beth. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and what's great about all this for this book is that you don't need to know any of that stuff. Uh, you don't really need to know anything about the play Hamlet. You don't really need to know that much about Shakespeare. I do, which think- is good because nobody knows that much about him. It's Here's true. Shakespeare fact number three: is we really know very little about the <laughs> the life and times of the Bard. So much so that people are still putting forward like bogus. He couldn't have written all those plays theories, which I I really don't agree with any of those people. And uh-huh. just go jump in a lake. 
It's just, um, it seems like a lot of plays for one person. Isn't that what that argument breaks down to? Yes. Man, this seems like a lot of different plays for one guy to write. And how dare someone read some books and have an imagination? Like, he couldn't, he couldn't possibly. Just like, I don't know how you can live in a world where Dean Koontz is a living person and be like, <laughs> you know, it seems like a lot of stuff for one person to write. It's true. It seems like a lot for one guy. And that it being a real person is a thing that apparently spoke to O'Farrell as she got into writing this book. I found an interview with her with the CBC in Canada, which is how I also learned about the alternate title. Um, And she said, I was studying Hamlet for my hires. That's a capitalized H. I bet that's some sort of grade school thing in the UK. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot about the character of Hamlet that appeals to the certain type of adolescent that I was at the time. One who perhaps thinks too much is a bit melancholic and wears a lot of black. I was lucky enough to have a fantastic English teacher called Mr. Henderson. He arrived in my life at at a very deliberate point for me. He mentioned in passing one day when we were studying the play that Shakespeare had had a son called Hamnet. It was quite shocking to me. At that age in particular, you haven't realized that authors are actual human beings, in particular Shakespeare, who is, of course, the great behemoth, the writer of writers. She goes on to talk about she had a, a, this is probably in her memoir, like she had a severe disease as, as a young girl, that almost paralyzed her for life um, that she recovered from when she was like eight. And she goes, she has one son and two daughters, which is like Shakespeare. She's a little superstitious and didn't feel comfortable writing this story until her son had reached the age of 11 to like clear it. Cause she was worried about that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I just made a note, Andrew, when did you realize that the people who wrote the books you were reading were like real people? I was having trouble actually answering that question for myself. That's an, hmm, I'm trying to think like, cause I definitely probably thought that Dr. Seuss was like a fake, like he actually was a cat in a hat who was writing a bunch of books. I'm trying to think like what the, what the first author who I really dug into like the, the biography of was, um, but getting as a, when you're a fan of the wheel of time, sure. a, re- a reader of the wheel an of time. An experiencer. <laughs> you learn all the fun facts about Robert Jordan, James Oliver Rigney, and his wonderful life. Uh huh. Like how the like core polyamorous relationship <laughs> at the heart of those books was influenced by a point in his life where he was dating yeah. two different women. <laughs> okay. So there, there's one. Like I don't, but but like. Tolkien and like Brian Jakes and all these people like the the internet didn't yes. exist as such when I started reading these people and so they just seemed like I don't know they they seemed other to me and I could there, there was not easily accessible information for me about them as a like child who didn't just go out and research stuff yeah I feel I like know. for me the answer I wrote down is that uh for music anyway I definitely had VH1s behind the music when we were in middle school which is like the closest when I get to learn about like why the guys in Metallica went through multiple guitarists because they all have problems with their guitarists like that was like a real thing that I had to learn as I listened to their music but authors I feel like the, the American education system is really interested in getting you to write a five paragraph essay about like themes and metaphors and not like really consider the people who wrote those books and what they might have experienced before they wrote them. I mean, to be fair, that is like a whole school of literary thought is like context doesn't matter. It's not anything. Don't pay attention to it. Yes. Sure. Yes. The new critics. That's not what we subscribe to. We're old critics or new, (laughs) new critics. Let us know. Tell us Either if you way. think we're old critics or new, new critics. Um, so, yeah, it's just interesting. This book shows up and is like, hey, I Maggie Farrell's like, I want to write about this kid who died 400 years ago. But really write about this fabulous meat catching contraption. Really what I want to write about is uh, William Shakespeare's family. It is telling that the book in the in in the text never uses his name the name william the bard and the name shakespeare are not in the book at all i 
searched my ebook edition and the name Shakespeare only appears 13 times twice in the Library of Congress notes at the beginning and 11 times in like the bibliography and stuff. <laughs> so this is I read an interview with her in the Guardian and the interviewer says I noticed she never uses Shakespeare's name in the book. Uh, and then she says, I couldn't. When you're sitting at your computer immersed in the world you've created and have to write, William Shakespeare had his breakfast, it's impossible <laughs> not to think, I'm an Egypt. Even calling him William seems colossally presumptuous. So I guess, you, yeah, you wouldn't just want to write like, oh, William Shakespeare went to the bathroom and washed his hands. That's outstanding. That's so <laughs> funny. And it's, it's interesting because in the book, it doesn't read as funny, but that rules. Um, you first like, so like the book, you meet, you meet Hamnet first. You then, I think, meet some other folks in the family. You meet his wife who it's. Okay, so folks might know Shakespeare was married to Anne Hathaway. Oh, this is fact four? Fun yeah. Shakespeare fact four? But not that Anne Hathaway. No. But a woman named Anne Hathaway. Um, right. But she was named Agnes at her birth, and um, I believe the spelling that O'Farrell, or not the spelling, the pronunciation that O'Farrell uh, thinks was correct is Agnes. Yes, um, right. And yeah, I saw that too. so that is how she's referred to throughout this book. There's one like she playfully re- calls herself Anne at one point as like a bit of misdirection. Um, you've met all those people and then you get a flashback to a Latin tutor who for chapters is just referred to as the tutor. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes clear that he's like Shakespeare mm-hmm. because of the other characters that are related to him. And things that are happening in the book, like his dad is a glove maker and Mm -hmm. yada, yada, yada. It's not that he says like cool stuff like, oh, alas, poor Yorick. No. I'm just talking about my friend Yorick. No. Or he says like to be or not to be hungry to get lunch. (laughs) No, it doesn't do any of that. It's really remarkable mm -hmm. how successfully she makes this. The elevator pitch of this book is Shakespeare had a kid named Hamnet. Also, his moving portrait of grief is called Hamlet. Isn't that strange? I'll write a book about it. And then she takes Shakespeare and mostly moves him off stage entirely. Mm -hmm. There's like, you know, he's in the book, but it is not a thing where it's like let's dive into the deep psyche that created this play you've heard of it is like let's because i feel like that's that's done trodden yeah. ground yes. right yeah. yeah it is and the the and, and we'll, we'll get into how much fun i think this is sure the the impetus behind her like writing about this book at least in the interviews and the reviews that i read is it's more about um like when you were when you were being taught history or like learning about Shakespeare or whatever, and you hear that someone in like the 16th century has a kid that dies. And I, I actually feel like I heard this from somebody in some history class at one point. And I don't know if this is true for you, but they basically play it down like it happened so often that you wouldn't even really think yeah. about it that much. Yeah, like everybody's it's just, just like having a, kids because everybody owns a farm and you're going to lose like three or four, so everybody whatever. Everybody owns a farm and you're going to lose a couple and like birth control wasn't really invented yet and nobody like really knew how it, any of it worked anyway. <laughs> so you just didn't think about it that much and O'Farrell is like, that is a wild supposition <laughs> to just assume that that is true. Yes, yes. Um, and yes, yeah, so, so she O'Farrell, like at age eight, she had a uh, she was hospitalized with encephalitis, which is oh, like is that swelling of yeah. swelling of the brain. Um, and then she has a daughter who has really extreme like peanut allergies, like an- anaphylaxis. Um, mm. she, she apparently, if like even the most casual and incidental peanut exposure can send her into shock. And and so though O'Farrell has never like lost a child, it is easy for her to imagine the pain of that because she is always, she, she she's always worried about her child's well being and, and she cannot always control what happens to her children. And I think that's, that's true of any parent. And so, yeah, when learning that this was a, like when this was, when this, when I learned that this was dead kid fic, which is something I've had a lot of trouble with in the last, sure. uh, say, year and a half or yeah. so. 
um, I think it was it was the HBO Perry Mason. Oh, sure. Uh, thing with um, Matthew Reese. Uh, yeah. yeah, Matthew Ray- Reese from the Americans. Yeah, that opens with like a dead baby boy mm. in a train car, and I was like, well. I can't watch stuff like this anymore. <laughs> like, sure. I can't, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted um, to. S- yeah. Uh, I want, well, I did. I did make some notes. It's like, I think that this, this book, which she was clearly thinking about and writing before 2020, obviously, I think it will hit very hard. It hit me hard. I don't have kids. Um, and that you know of. <laughs> yes. That- <laughs> Well, I, I honestly can't argue with that. That's a true statement. Um, <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha again. Dang. <laughs> Weren't expecting that, I bet. Wow, I really wasn't. What a hoisted by my own petard, to quote Shakespeare. Um, that's from Hamlet. Um, a The book is a story about child loss. Like, that will might be a no-go for some folks. Um it could be cathartic for folks, and I think if they're they're looking for, you know, if that is something that you can process and might be interested to process, like I think this book is there for you. Um, it is also can, a book, like I can deal with it. I just hate yeah. coming upon it unawares. And and I think so. That's that's something I do want to say. Like this book, the book, the stuff in this book that surprised me, I guess, was that it actually has a lot of plague stuff in it. That reads very differently in 2020. Yeah, like I read there was a whole chapter or like a whole like 10 page run that's just describing how the plague, which and and we don't know how Hamnet died, but it's assumed that it was a plague because of just the time that it was. Um, So it traces the plague that the Shakespeare kids catch from where it originated to them. Right. Yes. And it doesn't do it. And this is like a big thing that the book does very well. It doesn't do it in a dry historical fiction zoom out. It just goes, hey, to tell you about how these kids got the plague, I need to tell you about two people over on this other side of Europe. And then in a very human way, gives you a bunch of little vignettes of a glassblower in Venice and a young boy aboard a ship or a young sailor aboard a ship traveling through the Mediterranean. And it's very grounded and it's it it has a lot of the stuff in terms of like human insight and internal monologue that makes the rest of the book work. It just also happens to be doing this like let me zoom around the globe and tell you the story of the plague thing. So I was really It's like the movie Outbreak. Definitely. It was like the movie it was like a little ten page movie outbreak that I got to read in the middle of this book. Actually, I think it's a good reminder of how you can pull this kind of thing off in a book, maybe in a TV show, but I think movies are very like generally fumble when they're like, let me take a break and like zoom out and tell you this other thing. Like zoom movies don't do that particularly well, I think. Yeah, they break the I'm flow. trying to think I think the big short did it okay. 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 I haven't seen that many movies just like <laughs> lately or in general. Sure. I that also comes think to, mind. to your point about um, fiction that has like grief as a surprise gotcha, which can happen and, and can often be very effective. I think the beginning of Up is a good um, touchstone for a lot of people in movies. But I think this book, personally, at least my knowledge, coming in, you know, or at least most readers will know, that Hamlet had a son who died. If you're interested... Not Hamlet. Shakespeare. <laughs> Whoops. Shakespeare <laughs> had a son who died. If you are someone who picked this book up because you have a passing interest in Shakespeare, you probably know that coming in. So you have a bit more of like dramatic irony, kind of sort of Damocles stuff happening as opposed to... Uh, oh, I was just reading this historical fiction book and then all of a sudden trauma. Like you're... Sure. you're I, I think the book is signaling what it's about from the beginning before you even read it. And I think that that might make that experience easier for someone who is perhaps as worried as you are about kind of like your experience inside the story. Um, not even like worried. not worried. It's just not I the don't right like word, it. But, yeah. I just don't like it. I, I think it creates room for other feelings more easily is what maybe what sure. I'd say. And okay. to, yeah. to what you said about um, Hamnet dying from the black death there's a note in the historical note at the back of this novel where she is citing 
Greenblatt, again, there's a New Yorker article he wrote actually in May of 2020 about this, where none of Shakespeare's plays specifically mention the plague at all. None of them. Mm-hmm. Um, he uses it as an idiom and as a metaphor, uh, but there's only one play where a plague actually impacts the plot, and that's in Romeo and Juliet, when a dude can't deliver Juliet's letter about her dope plan um, because of a plague in Mantua, or like locking mm-hmm. up Mantua or whatever. But there's never like, he writes no plays about people experiencing the black death it's never done by name probably some of that is like i don't want to go see a play about covid19 ever yeah yeah i don't want to go i've lived it i don't need to i don't need to see it fictionalized thank you very much and greenblatt closes his essay with uh a dig basically being like what shakespeare was perhaps more interested in was failures of leadership and corrupt government and the things that might cause such a tragic element of your life to be worse. Like he's like, well, the plague's just here because we live on earth, but people could be better. Might be what Shakespeare's writing about, which I think is a compelling argument. Um, Mm. So anyway, this book is separated into two parts. The first part is two main threads. Um, One is what I'll, you know, tentatively called the present, I guess like 1596, um, which is Hamnet and his twin sister Judy. Judith are going to get sick from the plague. They're going to get buboes and they're not going to make it. Buboes? Yeah, those are the like the things that the you know bad parts of your body that grow because of the plague that you get. Okay. Yeah, it's gross. It's gross. It's bad. I it's will. Not, describe- it's such a cute name for something that's so yeah <laughs> so bad. <laughs> it's really rough. Um, and we, but we, we meet Hamnet first. He's like this, like cool kid. He's smart. He's like a super smart starry eyed dreamer. Like he's good at school, but if he hears a horse cart outside, he'll get distracted, like making up the backstory for why there's a horse cart going down the road for like 20 mm-hmm. minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a sweet kid. And most of the, most of the story we see of him is inter like every other chapter it's him trying to get adults to show up to help judith who's clearly sick no one is around because they're all doing their adult things and ultimately one of the last things that hamnet does is like he and judith are twins and there's some stuff about him and judith trying to pull like a sister sister sometimes where they like try and swap places or maybe like a parent trap i suppose to try and like trick adults I'm and not familiar enough with the blow by blow plot of the I show think Sister Sister to There's a yeah. lot I think there's some switching going on. Anyway, I can imagine, yeah. Um it ends with or his plot ends with him basically like tr- trying to trick death. Like he he thinks his sister is going to die and so he like swaps he's really sad he like swaps clothes with her and like curls up next to her while she's like sick and he is also getting sick and and is gonna die and uh he like thinks that maybe he can trick death and death will take him instead which death does Mm -hmm. um but that those chapters we meet some of the family through those but then we are also getting flashbacks to Agnes and the tutor and their relationship um 15 or so years prior and then the back half of the book is the family grieving in stratford while the playwright grieves in london and the fallout from this like trauma that the family has experienced sure um i was just surprised by like 30 percent of the way through the book maybe even earlier than that i was like oh wow this book isn't about hamnet and this book isn't about shakespeare it's definitely about (laughs) anya's hathaway slash anya's shakespeare Mm -hmm. which is kind of I just dig it as, you know, what you said earlier, like stories about Shakespeare's inner life are already, you know, we have plenty of those. They exist. You could go watch Shakespeare in Love. You could go read a number of other books um, where people are like, what kind of guy was Shakespeare? Mm -hmm. But the let's look into history and just move the camera over or like, pick someone else to follow is an increasingly useful and interesting like authorial tactic i think i don't know i was reminded while i was reading this 
Andrew, of uh, that Madeline Miller book, Cersei, that you read, that I know you oh, liked. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, Just as like, here's a thing where the most readers coming to this story will know something about the characters we're not talking about, and instead I'm going to tell you more about a character that you only sort of know. Yeah, yeah, and, then, and that can also be kind of trite, depending on what you, or, or easy, I guess, depending on what you want to do. This is an Ender's um, Shadow, for, is what I'm saying. It's not <laughs> It's not the, the secret, true history of Shakespeare. The true history of Shakespeare is that his son, Hamnet, <laughs> like, encyclopedia, like Encyclopedia Brown, wrote all of his plays for him. It's not that. Shakespeare would bring home plays from work and be like, man, I can't to be or something like I don't know I don't know how the end of this line is gonna go and then Hamnet figures it out (laughs) um you were gonna bring something up I know I had an actual point oh it was uh again about O'Farrell's perspective specifically like she thinks that um Anne Hathaway Anya Hathaway however you want to refer to her is downplayed or like mischaracterized or just things, things are assumed about her by predominantly male historians Mm. that do not necessarily have to be true. Like it is commonly the thought, I guess, apparently that she was sort of, she's an older woman and, and she's attached herself to this like historically important guy who, who, always seemed like he was off doing other plays so she must have been some kind of money grubber something huh. and it was an unhappy marriage and oh wow and and he didn't want to be in it and instead she talks about uh like flipping the script and like she is she is an older woman with a family who's got like an established what is it like like a sheep farm or something yeah like, yeah 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 and this is some like 18 year old who's got no trade, no family, no nothing. And she takes interest in him instead. Like, why Why do we, given that we know so little about Shakespeare, why are we so comfortable, like, assuming this this thing about his marriage, like, over and over? And so, yeah, that's that's another thing that she is thinking about. I love I thinking about it like that. I, I wanted to, like, make sure I name check for anybody interested in this book because they're like a theater person. They might want to go read some plays by Lauren Gunderson, who is really lately spent the last like five to ten years writing plays about interesting women in history both people you've heard of and people you haven't um but then there's also stuff like marlene wagman geller's book behind every great man which is all about like the partners of notable historical figures Mm -hmm. um you know and i i feel like every year i am grateful to read more articles about folks in history like that and this is like yeah this woman is just like in his life but she had a life too. And it isn't just about Shakespeare being off stage. Like I'm, oh, I'm so glad to hear about that thing about um, the perception of her as like chasing money, because you're totally right Their Their proposal is like fraught and based on the fact that he is a crappy Taylor's son who hates his life and has some real George Bailey. I'm going to kick this crummy little town's dust off my heels energy. And George Bailey, I wish that he could. <laughs> I know we did both just watched that movie. So. He's always talking to people about, and I probably a lot of people listen. Some people listening have watched that movie again yeah. recently because of the season. It's wonderful it life. Yeah, he always. I wish he could talk to people who live and work in Bedford Falls about wanting to live about wanting to leave Bedford Falls without saying you and the place where you live is dumb and i hate it i yeah and the thing i want most in the whole world is to leave it behind because there's nothing of value here he's a i i appreciate that that character contains multitudes is what i will I, say yes, upon a recent I, watch i do also i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say you know george bailey is canceled <laughs> but He's he's a complicated man. Yes. Um, but Seeing yeah, so muse of a complicated man. Shakespeare, as portrayed at the beginning of this book, does have some big George Bailey energy, except he doesn't like his dad at all because his dad is abusive in both to him and to grandson Hamnet, which we see in the present tense timeline. Um, and he has to tutor this like successful sheep family 
uh, and their kids <laughs> because his dad like ran up some debts or something. And so his dad's like, well, you're just going to go tutor them in Latin because I'm telling you to. And he's like, this place sucks. I guess I'm going to. And he falls for the eldest daughter of this Hathaway family. The father of the Hathaways has passed away by this point. We do get her backstory. She and her brother Bartholomew. Bartholomew is this huge dude. Every time he's on the page, he's described as just being humongous. And I love him. He's like something out of, I don't know, I feel like he's out of a Tolkien novel. He's just this Dang. big giant man who is like kind of brisk, but surprises you, mean, you, you with caring brusque? about people. Yeah, mm. brusque. Is that what he's I, not, I chickened he's not out? Like, he's not. He's not chilly. That's brisk, baby. Is what he says every other page. Um, he it ends up being pretty lovable over the course of the book, even though yeah, he is brusque and curt. In other words, that mean that thing is what I meant. I thought to you say. said his name was Bartholomew. Stop it. Mm. Uh, and don't have a cow, man. Oh my god, total tip. This the <laughs> Bart and uh, Anyas are actually their dad's kids from a previous marriage to a woman of the forest named Rowan, who is sort of like, I don't know that she's explicitly pagan, but she is certainly portrayed as someone who is like connected to nature and does things a little bit differently and is, you know, maybe magic or something and people aren't sure what to think of her. And then she dies in childbirth. And so he remarries um, and has four more kids with this woman named Joan who really does not care for Agnes and has to kind of deal with Bartholomew. And so Agnes develops this sort of like, I don't know if you could be a manic pixie dream girl in the six, in the 16th century, but she sort of has that vibe going on. She walks around with a hawk on her arm all the time and like <laughs> hangs out in the woods. It was given to her by... It's actually a kestrel, excuse me. It was given to her wow. Wow, by the priest who like buried her mom secretly during, using the secret pagan Christian rites or something, and she swore to her dad that she'd never tell anyone about it. And, sh- and Agnes may or may not have like the sight like she may be she may have a gift of seeing the future of people or something like it the the book handles it really deftly where like we never really see any times where she's wrong but it's never made so explicit that it's like yeah it's definitely magic it kind of walks that that fuzzy line of it could be true because there's nothing to prove it otherwise. Like when you said that I have kids I don't know about. Like that mm-hmm. kind of, you know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't say you do. I said you might. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and I really, like, I really appreciated how they, how O'Farrell rolls out Anya's backstory. Because, like, by the time that you meet her, uh, the tutor is into her. And she, we've heard Thank a little bit heard- of enunciating because yep. i wouldn't have wanted to think that a tutor was into her true i mean there's another yeah. another possibility in this it's possible frame. yes um and you know that she likes to she pinches the muscle in between your thumb and your forefinger and it like does like sort of a vulcan neck pinch on you hmm. and she also sees your future and like learns hmm. things about you Dang. um and it's un it's like kind of that that wishy-washy zone where she might just be super perceptive but she also might be doing magic and you get a lot of her backstory and then it boils all of these specifics boil down to this like really universal paragraph she grows up feeling wrong out of place too dark too tall too unruly too opinionated too silent too strange she grows up with the awareness that she is merely tolerated an irritant useless that she does not deserve love that she will need to change herself substantially crush herself down if she is to be married she grows up too with the memory of what it meant to be properly loved for what you are not what you ought to be there is just enough of this recollection alive she hopes to enable her to recognize it if she meets it again and that paragraph comes after a bunch of like more specific stuff so i was just i noted that as like huh i imagine a lot of people could read that paragraph and be like i i feel i have ever felt those ways mm-hmm. um but it it isn't a preamble to the details it, it follows it which i just thought was an interesting artful choice um but then yeah, she's had two big visions, Andrew. 
that the tutor has like big things ahead of him. He's got like a big, he's got just like a lot in him that is going to come out someday Mm -hmm. in the future. So she kind of understands that he needs to get out from under his family. Um, And later on after they're married, she is actually the one who like, I, I almost said connives and it's not that dastardly. She, she orchestrates actually and, and, uses her connections to like get him to move to London um, and expand his father's business, even though he's terrible at business, mm-hmm. um, which leads to him to his, his theater career. And she also has a prophecy that she, upon her deathbed, uh, will have two children with her. Um, you might see how this could be a problem when she has one kid, Susanna, and then a set of twins. Yeah, I can't see how that would be a problem. You can see how that might be a problem. Um, and she's very concerned about about that. Um, the The stuff in between them getting together and her having the kids is a lot of really insightful stuff about what it means to be someone from a family who doesn't care for you moving into a family who's like excited you're there for dowry reasons, but isn't excited <laughs> that you're there because you got pregnant out of wedlock, even though you said mm-hmm. you were hand fasted, which I mm-hmm. guess just means you like shook hands and said, let's get married and then let's talk to our parents about it. Hand fasted, you say? Yeah. I, hmm. I think that must be a thing or was a thing. They they said they were going to get married and then he was like, I guess I'll talk to your stepmom about it. And her stepmom threw a fit. And then he goes to his family about it and his mom's mad, but his dad is like, well, how can I make this work for me? <laughs> and those moments, that's a scene that I think is like really... Uh, is a really good example of what O'Farrell's good at, where she does a lot of really close third-person inner monologue stuff, where in that scene where Shakespeare's dealing with his parents, he's like, oh, this is... Wow, they learned that I knocked this lady up, huh? Okay, <laughs> let's see how this goes. Oh, my mom's real mad, but maybe my dad's into it. Oh, crap, my dad's twisting it for his purposes, and I hate my dad. <laughs> and it just like those pages flow really organically you feel like you're really spending time with that person um, and, and it's, it's very effective. Uh, but then, yeah, you get this portrait of Anya's kind of living in a liminal space where she is both welcome and unwelcome almost everywhere she goes. Mm-hmm. She's trying to like, when she has her first baby, she goes out into the woods to like have it under a dead tree. I guess like the way her mom had her. Yeah, no, it's just, that's just tradition, man. Yeah. People don't love it, and then they prevent her from doing it when she has the twins, which is like a whole big... It adds trauma to an already traumatic experience for her, because she didn't even know she was having twins until she had the first baby, and then the midwife's like, yo, you have another one coming. And again, like those scenes are are rendered really lovingly uh, and well done. And then, of course, we get... This is all interspersed with the advancement of the plague plot and the growing realization that judith is likely to die they write to shakespeare and they're like yo you gotta come home he's the plague has closed theaters in london any mention of all the closed theaters was really messing me up in this book that was fun to -hmm. think about my entire shuttered industry that was cool um but you have you do have zoom though we have Zoom all the, and all the world's a Zoom. I Craig will say you're just Zoomers. <laughs> I will say that my mom and sister very much enjoyed Andrew Lincoln's portrayal of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol presented over Zoom by the Old Vic Theater. So I'll just say that, you know, some people for some people it's working for yeah. me. It's work. That's what I'll say. <laughs> um but that that progresses he does make it home basically just in time to learn that his son has died Mm -hmm. um and then the book kind of shifts it doesn't shift gears because you know that this is coming the whole time um but i will say that stylistically she in the beginning of the second half of the book uses a lot of really short passages like kind of like 
there might be a scene that is only a paragraph or two and she's kind of has this like relentless march of grief vignettes um until characters start coming out of it uh it's really effective considering that the rest of the book has not been written that way um Mm. and then from there it is like I don't know. It's a portrait of a marriage that has this character's loss at the heart of it. It is also defined by the fact that this guy went off to London and then like fell in love with theater and is like anytime he's home, he's like, if I do not go back to that thing in London, I will die because this place is going to kill me. And he loves his family, but boy, howdy, he can't stand to be in his hometown and he fears what he will become. Like the scenes leading up to his leaving, she is like, "Wow, he is not the dude I married. Like he is fun. To, he's, he is cosmically transforming into a terrible creature, and I need to get him out of here." And then, of course, she is worried that he has become someone else when he leaves, which is mm-hmm. also true. I think. Do you think that theater people still gave obnoxious interviews about when they were quote bitten by the bug. Oh God. In Shakespeare's time. (laughs) Or would that have had too many negative connotations (laughs) to be like an acceptable metaphor for. They probably would not have used that, that specific metaphor. I do Mm -hmm. think there's a fun little device. I caught fleas from the rat of theater. Ew, gross. (laughs) Um, there's two things that O'Farrell zeroes in on that are really neat. One, in his first letters back to Agnes, he writes about connecting with the theater because they need all sorts of special gloves for their different characters. Some of the gloves are ladies' gloves, but for male hands because of actors at the time. And that's like sure, a little yes. detail that she can't get out of her head. And mm-hmm. then over the that's course, that's another. I feel I've lost count. I think that's another Shakespeare fact. Yeah, Did men you know play the, the ladies were all played by men. Yeah. Oh man. Um, you oh, can go. Oh boy. Oh, you can go watch the the movie Stage Beauty if you want to learn a little bit more about that. Um, she then starts to be like, oh wow, his letters. He's having a great time. <laughs> and <laughs> what does that mean for whether or not he's gonna ever come back to us? And he, I will say, like he does attempt to move them to London a few times, but because Judith, one of the twins, was born second and kind of almost died when she was born and then has a a weaker constitution, they really fear moving her to the city at all. Like, they think that she will just not make it, and then even even more so after she has the plague and recovers. Yeah, because the knowledge of uh, medicine is basically down to air quality. Like, you've got city air and you've got the air by the sea, and never the twain shall meet. Yeah. Um, And it builds to this really effective, like, final sequence where... Uh, he has bought them this sick house. Oh, no pun intended. This great house in <laughs> Stratford, excuse me. And it's creating like some interesting tension with the community, but they have a cool house. Her her daughters are becoming older women who are start, starting to take care of their own business affairs and stuff. And he has been writing nothing but comedies and histories. And when she gets a letter that he's writing comedies, she's like, what is he doing writing comedies? Our son died. But then she hears from her mean stepmother that he has written a play called Hamlet, which no one in the in the book is like, Hamlet, that's not Hamnet. They all understand that that's it's different the same. That's different from Hamnet. Yeah. No, they're like, it's the same. And everyone is kind of scandalized by this. And she is kind of upset because she has not heard from him about this. And so she goes to London to confront him. Of course, cannot reach him. And the book ends with her seeing him perform in the play because, you know, apocryphally, we believe that Shakespeare performed as uh, the ghost of King Hamlet in like original productions of the play. Hmm. Um, And so she the book ends with her watching him perform as the king or as the ghost of the king. She is watching this other character be Hamlet and up until the moment that that character appears on stage, she's like, this is bogus. These, this sucks. <laughs> These people are just speaking stupid words. And my, my mean husband wrote this instead of talking to me about his grief. Um, and then her son, for lack of 
you know, better word appears on stage and she is utterly transfixed by it. Um, and it ends with her kind of really taking in with that moment. It was, I'd like almost, I not threw the book down, but I was so moved by the end of the book that Laura was startled. I was reading it like a chair over from her in the living room. And I was like, huh. this was, it was a lot. I, for me, certainly because I'm familiar with the, with the play, there are parts in the, both in when Hamnet is dying and in the grief montage afterwards, where there are lines from characters that I'm sure there are other references. The book is really, from what I could tell, pretty reference thin. If you're looking for something that's like cheekily referencing like Hamlet, doing the thing I was talking about yeah. earlier, where they're like, "Oh, Hurley, Burley. Yes, said. yes, exactly. But there's stuff when. You know, the way that she repeats he is dead, the way that Judith asks, will he ever come back? And she has to say, no, he will never come again. Or where they ask, where is he? Like uh, two of those things specifically feel like references to Ophelia's scene after Polonius has died. Um, And they just emotionally feel like they're referencing the play, even if they're not referencing it explicitly in text in ways that was like getting me as I was reading it. Um, Sure. And I, I think that's a thing where you do not need to know that for it to hit you. Um, but it it did and it didn't feel clever. It felt like true. It felt like just a smart way to work that in. Um, we already talked about the plague sequence as a cool way to do historical fiction, but grounded in the storytelling style. I want to share another one with you, Andrew, that I thought was kind of neat. Please do. Um, earlier in the book, the tutor and Agnes are into each other she's got this kind of you know witchy energy that he is into (laughs) but she has like chosen him and after this scene she is the one who's like he is um he's gonna end up he they're hand fasted and he's gonna end up going to her stepmother to be like hey i want to marry your daughter um and she's like nah you're just an idiot with no prospects and you know about the dowry situation so no go away please um and Anius is like well listen get me pregnant and so it definitely her idea which is cool Um, oh yeah i heard i read in multiple reviews slash interviews about this very apparently horny scene in like an apple cellar yes oh boy good it's so good so there's this scene that is in this storehouse where she keeps her kestrel her pet hawk and it's like hooded and like sitting on whatever hawks sit on and there's like we get a couple paragraphs that's like about how apples are stored. Like mm-hmm. you need to put them on these shelves. Uh, you need to put them upside down with the stems down and you need to keep them from touching each other. You need to keep them in their grooves or else during the winter they will touch and they will bruise and they will spoil and mm-hmm. you won't have any like fruit in the winter and you'll get like scurvy and die, I guess. Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a few pages, it feels like, Oh, this is some interesting historical fiction table setting. I'm learning about apples. <laughs> and then you get like a paragraph where it's like, except something is moving the apples again and again and again over and over with a shunting, nudging, insistent motion. And you get a paragraph of like the bird being like, well, the bird has its hood on, but it can hear mice. And like, it can hear that there are heartbeats of two mammals in the room and heavy breathing. You're like, Mm -hmm. oh crap, they're boning and they're shaking up the apples. and All Mm -hmm. the apples are going to touch. It was just like a cool, she's, Throughout the book, she finds really personal, uh, unique ways to do a little flourish of historical fiction, but also be like, nah, people are living people lives. How do you like them apples? Get it? How did you like them apples? The apples in this scene or overall? Yeah. Wait. I mean, how did how? How did you like them apples when you read this scene in the apple cellar? I thought it was oh well, they probably tasted pretty good. The tutor immediately. I mean, like, not the. How did you? What did you think of? (laughs) What did you think of them apples? (laughs) Oh, them apples. Yeah, like well, like how did you? What did you think of the scene? Yeah, is what I'm asking. But I'm not like how was you? How you like them apples? Yeah, I see how you're you're getting confused because there are apples, like literally apples in the scene also. Yeah, I thought that I'm asking how you like yeah, I was asking how you like them apples, you know? 
um <laughs> they uh they were they were straight jazz baby like jazz mm, is a type of apples. apple yeah. yeah no that's good i could throw a gala for these apples mm. delicious buy me a macintosh i love these apples yeah my granny smith she loves <laughs> apples um yeah, yeah. uh-huh apples is good is good um and the last thing i'll just shout out style wise that i don't think i've touched on i mentioned I thought this. that went really i thought the apple thing that apple bit i thought went really good yeah it was good you know sometimes you gotta turn the engine over a few times before the car goes really fast um, and sometimes sometimes you flood it also <laughs> okay um i've mentioned this a little bit like the way that she pops in and out of characters like close third person points of view is really uh affecting and she does the thing that, for lack of a better word, always, for lack of a better reference, always reminds me of the stage manager in Our Town, where the narrator can jump like through time in a sentence to like introduce a. So in Our Town, the stage manager might like introduce a character and then in the same breath like tell you that the character is going to die in twenty years, and it like lends import to the point that they just made about that character, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um. So O'Farrell does this regularly in ways that are really effective, where like you first meet adult Agnes in a field caring for bees, which is always impressive. I don't know how people care for bees. It's so scary to me that you would literally let bees touch you, uh, like that. Yeah, they but, got stingers in their butt. Their whole their whole butts are. Points. I've seen my girl. How do people handle bees? It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but you are what you the reader are experiencing that scene, knowing that Hamnet is back at his house. His sister is probably dying, and he doesn't know where any of the adults are. And you get this little this little paragraph here later, and for the rest of her life. Agnes will think that if she had left there and then, if she had gathered her bags, her plants, her honey, and taken the path home, if she had heeded her abrupt, nameless unease, she might have changed what happened next. If she had left her swarming bees to their own devices, their own ends, instead of working to coax them back into their hives, she might have headed off what was coming. And just that, there are lots of little notes like that throughout the book where around a plot moment, you get a really insightful window into like the ways in which people will carry guilt or grief or wishes and regrets. That feels especially like, like parental to me. Yes. Like even like, even when something minor happens to Henry, it's like, well, that's, I could, I could have prevented that and should have prevented that. And I'm just going to think about how I could have prevented that for the rest of forever. Uh huh. Uh huh. There's, there's even a bit, um, I was thinking about you. There's a bit, after the the birth of the twins, I think, where because of Judith's like scare with with death, there's just that feeling, and one of the characters give voice gives voice to it. I don't know which one that is just like, well, I just have to live with the feeling that my kid could ever be in danger. Ever, I just have to live with that now because I know that that is true, mm-hmm. and it's just you know I know that that's a thing you've talked about and it's certainly part of what you've talked about here on this episode. And I was just like, yeah, that it was also one of those things where you're going through an ebook edition and like you get those little dot, dot dots that mean like the 200 people that, have yeah, highlighted it. People highlighted it. Oh boy. <laughs> like, oh boy. Oh boy. No, it's not when you think about becoming a parent, I guess like the first place your brain, like we, I, I thought we thought, I yeah. think on, on like a macro scale about the world and yeah. and the like large scale bad things that could happen. Like you think about climate change and you think about, you know, nuclear weapons still a thing. They are out. in fact. Yeah. Um, but you don't, you don't really know think like day to day about like, boy, it's great how he's walking and it, but what if he like fell exactly the wrong way when I was looking another direction and like, and, and he hit his head and something happened. Yep. Like you don't, you don't, you, you think more about the, like, like watching him take his first steps or, you know, watching him smile or laugh or whatever. You, you don't think about like the little weird ways that you're going to be worried about 
him because you don't know necessarily in advance. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. You don't. You don't know what you're going to be worried about. Yeah, and I don't I, know. But I, then tonight, th- today, he got a little like one of those little kid chairs. Yeah, you know. Oh, really I saw soft, the picture. It's very cute. Yeah, soft kid chairs. It has his name on it. it says Henry. And today he sat in that and drank like a pouch of like apple banana fruit slurry and watched Curious George with me, and that was fun. But was it like banana was themed nice. because there was a monkey on TV? No, it was it was coincidental. Well, I gave you the, the, the opportunity to take credit for that, but also. you know, yeah, it's fine. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just I, I think this book, when we talked about it being, you know. The, the pitfalls of it being uh, like trafficking in like family trauma as a, as a narrative device. I think it is, it is a more insightful and deeper book than that. Yeah. Uh, certainly O'Farrell's like background and, and what she's going for means it's not like a cheap yeah. attempt to, to play on like emotion and which, that, that I feel yes. like some like dead kid fic can definitely which, do that, which is when that kind of crops up in, in, you know, not to, I don't say this disparagingly, but when it crops up in kind of plot driven genre fiction, when it's like there as emotional shorthand rather than as the point of the work, you know? Um, but also there's a historical fiction angle to this book that might draw in people that, I was routinely surprised by what she decided to focus on and what she ended up saying in some of those scenes. So uh, this is one of those books that's like, it came out this year. And so like when people are like, oh, that's the that's the podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. Why'd they cover a book that just came out? Like this is a book that should have been around for a while. And I, <laughs> I feel like is playing in a space with stories that have been around for a while. And... If you are someone who is like, yeah, I know Shakespeare, but I don't know that I need to go read his plays again or ever. Like maybe you could come into this book and get a lot out of it and maybe find a way back to his plays, but maybe not. And that's OK. But you also have like other stuff that you've gotten out of this book. Sure. So, yeah. Um, That's all I got. Andrew, do you want to hit me with any more Shakespeare quotes that you know? Any other branding opportunities? Boy, I feel like I've done most of the ones that I know. <laughs> I feel like maybe McDonald's tree, would reach Dunce, out to the Dun- Scottish play. Yeah. Dunsinane. Trees. The trees. Yeah. C-sections. What about a Lorax Mackers Beware crossover? Beware the Ides of March. Mm-hmm. There's a sale on the Ides of March. Mm-hmm. 15% off because the eyes are 15. Ooh, that's a good Use one. offer code IDES. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good podcast. Thanks. Uh, if you think we're a good podcast, you could send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter slash Facebook.com slash overduepod. Lots of slashes. Thanks to Amanda, Leanne, Will, Becca, <laughs> Starfish, Chick, Bex, Sarah, Jane, Julian, and many more. Uh, our theme song is by Nick Larangis. Thanks, Nick. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to Apple and Google in our RSS feed. We're also on Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. Uh, we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read. We're getting to the end of December now, but uh, we will be posting our January schedule pretty soon. And uh, if you go to patreon.com slash overdue pod, you can give us a little bit of money, help support the show, help uh, pay for our supplies and equipment, and uh, also get early access to bonus episodes like the one we're going to be releasing for December, which is the uh, mystery book, Twas the Knife Before Christmas by Jacqueline Frost. Now, we know this is coming out after Christmas, but just, you know, still, still December. (laughs) Also, thanks to our Patreon supporters, you will be getting our final Genie Babies episode on the main feed at the end of this week, if you're listening to this around when it was released. So go check that out and stay tuned for our next Long Reads project. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for... I don't know. It's been been a year. Like, I don't know. I don't want to, like... I don't want to belabor it, yeah. even though I don't think I'm using that word right, but I can't 
language changes and that's just what belabor means now <laughs> uh thanks for sticking with us through it we hope you we, we have given you some uh levity and some stuff to think about this year that's not uh our you know wider situation and if certainly you, this yeah. podcast has been an escape like a release valve for me so yeah it's been really nice to have this show as a constant and make this year not just be about this year, but also include things that have been stuff we've been building and working on and having new folks find us is really cool and having yeah. old folks stick with us has been really heartwarming. So like, I don't know, it. I think it's been great to be able to make this show this year. Yeah, and, and for 2021, I, 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 we are... I think brainstorming some ways to do some more remote stuff. And then hopefully, you know, as we get into the middle and the back half of the year, we can get out and see all again. We'd like to do some live stuff. We had some plans that got canceled uh, early in the year that we'd like to, to revisit. So yeah, well, we're going to do what we can do and we'll let you know when we know it. In the meantime, I hope everybody had a safe and healthy uh, December and wish you a happy new year. And we'll see on the other side, I guess. Yeah, we'll be back next week. And until then, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.